And uh, had an interesting weekend this past weekend because I was, uh, I was in a place called uh, Charleston, Maine. And it's an hour north of Bangor, which, which means it's in Antarctica. <laughs> I mean, this place, huh? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm geographically dyslexic. So anyway, it was cold. And uh, I mean, it's in the middle. This place is the middle of nowhere. And, and I'll just tell you this, because I've just been thinking about this ever since the weekend. Uh, probably a year ago, year and a half ago, I had a call from a guy in Maine and uh, wanted to do a conference for men. And, and Nancy asked him, well, tell us about your church. And he said, well, they, they, they run 80 in their church. And that's, that's about average, I guess, up in that nick of the woods. And, but he really thought they could get some guys. So we talked, you know, and he didn't have a network, didn't really, just kind of had a vision for this thing. And so this went on for several months, and actually about six months, and they called back. And, you know, anyway, long story short, we said, all right, let's do this thing. And uh, he calls a little bit later, and he rents, he rents the high school auditorium because it'll seat 1,000 people. And his, he thinks he can get 1,000 guys. Well, there aren't 1,000 Christians in, in Maine that, I, that I'm aware of. But, you know, this guy just, just yeah, you know, this, this, this was just on this guy's heart. And uh, so anyway, I, I show up there Friday and uh, took me a long time to get there. We, we, we're driving in. This is kind of give you a feel for this place. Uh, they got one restaurant, and they got a subway that just went in. And that's big time. And it's just an old no dead, no, no Sonic. It's an old dead mill town. But we walk into this auditorium, and I, I'm going to tell you on the low end, there were 700 guys there. Might have been 800, but I don't want to overestimate it. But, you know, that's like, I mean, the equivalent of having a promise keepers here with 50,000. It was phenomenal, just incredible. And uh, man, I've just been amazed. And guys were there from all over New England. And uh, it was just one of those things that God, that God put together. And they were in a state of shock. So, you know, it's always fun when you see God work like that. And uh, I mean, th they, were, they were glowing just to see uh, just to see how God had put that thing together. It was, it was really a remarkable time. The other thing I gotta tell you about, uh, we were in this high school auditorium and just on the, on the other side of the road, about 20 yards, was this river, about a nice flowing river, you know? About 7,500 yards wide. And it was just jammed up with ice, these big ice flows. I mean, it was, I mean, it was another world, gosh. So, how cold? Oh, oh, that's the other issue. Didn't you tell me you're from Maine? You're from Massachusetts. That's Maine. What the heck? It's all the same. <laughs> they told me, see, I got up there, and these guys were all wearing short sleeve shirts, and it was like 40 degrees because they'd just come off two months. This is what they told me, where it was, it was ranging 20 below zero. They had a spell, they said, for about six, seven weeks. 20 below zero. So they had on t-shirts. So those of you who are complaining about anything today, just be glad you're here. All right. I got a question for you. How many of you guys, we haven't done this for a while, how many of you guys are still looking for work? 
You got guys in here? Okay, that's, that's a fair amount of guys. All right. We'll be praying for you guys. And because uh, that's serious stuff, feeling that kind of pressure. We also want to pray for little Kate. Um, she was, I understand, David, wasn't she taken to the hospital this afternoon? Yeah. She'd stop breathing? She stopped breathing, she's okay. She's okay now. All right, so there had to be some moments of anxiety. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father, thank you for the uh, great surprises that you delight to give to us at different points in life. And I, I thank you that I could be a part of that deal this weekend. That was really a remarkable thing to see how you worked and put all that together. And uh, it, it, just, it just was something that had your fingerprints all over it. And uh, that's always such a special time to, to see when you're obviously working and putting things together. It couldn't be attributed to human effort. And Father, we're reminded uh, of your faithfulness and of the way that you can intervene in our lives. And sometimes, Lord, when things are going tough, and they're difficult, we're living in tough times right now, economically. A lot of people are feeling the crunch. Uh, we've had guys raise their hands here tonight that they're out of work. And, uh, and they've still got that mortgage, and they've got bills, and they've got obligations. Father, we pray for these guys that, uh, that you would encourage them and infuse in them hope. Uh, I, th I think of that passage in Psalms, in, in Psalm 130, where he says, In your word do I hope. Lord, we, we open your word because the promises are there. We open your word because we're reminded that you're sovereign over every circumstance of our lives. And Lord, there are times when we think we've pretty much, uh, we've pretty much, made every call and we've made every contact and uh, it looks like things have just come to an end and that's when you love to break through. So we pray, Lord, that, that guys in this room would see movement and we pray that they would be encouraged and we pray, Lord, that they would trust you even when it seems there's no reason to trust you other than the fact that you're a good God. Help them to live off your promises and, and in the realization at the right time, at the right time, you will provide. You're Jehovah Jireh, and you will see to it. Now, Lord, we've been tracking with this little girl. Uh, you brought her into this world. Uh, she's been uh, nip and tuck from day one. And then here's a scare this afternoon. We pray that your hand would be upon her. If she's in the hospital, that you would stabilize her. We pray, Lord, that you would sustain her life. Encourage your parents. Uh, let them sense your presence tonight. Encourage them, Lord, with this little girl and with her life that is in your hands and that you do all things well. Now, Lord, speak to us tonight. Uh, we don't have any other vehicle for you to speak to us except through your word. And, Lord, we need a sure word tonight. We, we need a clear word. And we need a word that will undergird us. Thank you for your eternal word. As we look into it, Lord, Open our eyes that we might see, that we might behold wonderful things from your truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, in the 1920s, Charlie Chaplin was the most famous movie actor in all the world. And he was vacationing in France. He had a little hideaway that he loved to go to and get away from the crowds. Uh, no one really knew he was there. And he heard one night that the, uh, that the local town was having a Charlie Chaplin look-alike contest. 
So just, as a, just, just to have some fun, he decided that he was going to enter it. Dressed up, put on his makeup, went into town, entered the contest, and he finished third. <laughs> and when he told them who he was, they really didn't believe him. Uh, you, you know, that's the interesting thing about life, is that sometimes uh, we tell people who we are, but they really don't believe us. Now, now, how can that be? When I was in college, there was a family that was in our church, a uh, very sharp family. Uh, uh, this, this man was, uh, uh, was a leader in the church, had been married to his wife for close to 30 years, uh, two beautiful daughters, a son in junior high school, seemed to be the model, perfect Christian family. The guy was a servant. Uh, the guy did a lot of behind-the-scenes work in the church, was the head of the finance committee of the church, real faithful guy, guy that could be depended on, guy that was above reproach, um, uh, guy whose family admired him. Uh, he, he was, uh, no, one, no one could replace him in their lives. And then it came out that um, on the other side of the county, he had another wife and he had another set of kids. And um, somehow for 20 years, he had kept the two separate. Um, see, he had said, he had said and presented himself that this is who I am. But see, the fact of the matter is, that's not who he was at all. Um, I, I've been. I've been, I, I'm hesitating here because I started to say I've been uh, rearranging my library, but that's not true. Uh, Mary has been doing that over the last month until she messed up her foot. She's been waylaid a little bit. But she's been rearranging some stuff for me, and I've got some duplicate books, and she's getting rid of those, and she's just redoing it, resectioning re stuff. And, and there's some piles of books, and this afternoon, I was walking by one of those, those piles that she's rearranging, and on the top of it was a book by a guy that uh, I remember reading this book, a very uh, prominent pastor, uh, a guy who had taken his church to uh, remarkable levels of growth, a guy whose book had sold dramatically as he talked about his ministry. Uh, not only was his church growing, they were spinning off other churches. Um, I remember being at a banquet with him in Portland, Oregon, and uh, I was speaking with him at this pastor's conference. I'd never met him before, but we were seated at the same table. He was there with his wife, and uh, he was leaving the next day for Korea because he'd been invited to go back over there again because they were using his book as a model for church growth. And we talked for probably 45 minutes at dinner, and um, just several weeks after that, I picked up uh, Christianity Today, and there was a report that he had been asked to resign from his church because over the 15-year history of his church, he'd been involved with eight different women sexually in the church. Uh, see, he appeared to be this man. He appeared to be this kind of individual, but in actuality, uh, he was something totally different. Uh, we use the term today, disconnect. It's kind of an in-term. See, when a, man's, uh, 
when a man's uh, public persona does not meet his private life, you've got a disconnect. In, in James, James says this. He says a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Um, when, when a man gets double-minded, eventually it's going to come out in his behavior. And, and I would, I would uh, throw this out to you, that when a man gets double-minded, it's because he has a double standard. Uh, we, we live in a world of double standards. We, we live in a world where there is a public persona and then there is the private reality. Uh, we live in a world where what is important is appearance rather than authenticity. Uh, we, we live in a world of, of spin rather than, than substance. Uh, so as a result, what happens is we all get a little jaded because we have seen this scenario way too many times where someone appears to be this way, but in actuality, uh, they're this way. And because of a disconnect in their character, uh, they really don't look like in private what they appear to be in public. They don't even come in third. They come in fourth or fifth or sixth. That's a character. That's a character issue. That's an integrity issue. Uh, we've been working through Nehemiah. I like this guy uh, because, because he's very real and because he's very authentic. Um, uh, we, we've seen his leadership style. We, we, have seen his, uh, uh, we have seen his approach. We've seen how he confronts problems. We've seen how he motivates people. Uh, what we're going to see tonight is not the public man. We're going to see the private man. Uh, we're going to see the real Nehemiah, and we're going to get a glimpse uh, beyond the exterior into the interior of his life. Uh, we're in Nehemiah 5, and I'd like you to turn there, if you would. In Nehemiah 5, <clears throat> in verse 14, we're going to see that it is, that it is of primary importance the kind of people that we are on the inside. Um, you know, the scripture says that your sin will find you out. And the amazing thing is, is that when we get double-minded and we develop a double standard, there is this sense uh, of uh, being invulnerable. There, there's a sense that the charade can continue, but in actuality, uh, that's a falsehood. Scripture tells us up front. Uh, the private walk has to meet the public persona. We talk a lot about integrity, and the best way that I can describe uh, integrity is, is the word congruency. What that means is all, all the pieces fit. Everything adds up. Uh, everything synchronizes. There, there is not a disconnect between what a man says and what a man does. Let's read this section in Nehemiah, and I think you're going to get a glimpse of what I'm talking about here. Uh, in verse 14, he's just confronted the religious leaders who have been taking advantage. When I say religious leaders, I'm talking about the wealthy leaders in the community. I'm talking about the haves. And what had happened was the haves... We're taking advantage of the have-nots. And he confronts their sin, 
they respond. And that was a big breakthrough. Verse 14, it says, Moreover, from the day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, for 12 years neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. And also I applied myself to the work on this wall. We did not buy any land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now that which was prepared for each day was one ox and six choice sheep. Also birds were prepared for me. And once in ten days all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the governor's food allowance, because the servitude was heavy on this people. Remember me, O oh my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Uh, it has been said that there are two ways to teach. The first way is to teach with your lips. The second way is to teach with your life. There is no powerful teacher uh, than example. Uh, Nehemiah, to me, is a guy who exemplified and modeled uh, the message of his life. Uh, but any great leader does that. Flip over to the New Testament with me for a minute. Uh, go to Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, if you would. Uh, Paul is going to encourage the readers at Philippi uh, to do something, quite frankly, that's very, very simple. In Philippians 3.17, Paul says this. He says, brethren, join in following my example. I got an email this week from a guy, uh, and he, as I recall the email, he said, uh, you know, I just, I, I wanted to ask you a question. And I've written to some different men, and I haven't really got a satisfactory answer, but I've got three kids that are preschool. And what I want to know is, what can I do to make them into leaders? What can I do to develop their leadership skills? And I wrote him back, and I said, basically, uh, what you're asking for is not an email, you're asking for a book. But it's a good question. Uh, we don't have time to do a book. So let me try and bottom line this. And I gave him this passage. Uh, he wants to develop his kids into leaders, then the best thing he can do is to be a leader. The best thing he can do is to model for them, not just to teach to them the truth of Jesus Christ and the truth of the Scripture, but to model and to be an example of the principles. So how do you turn out kids that are leaders? You show them what a leader looks like. You show them what it means to be devoted to Christ. You show them what it means to be devoted to your wife. When life gets hard and life gets difficult, and it gets difficult in the marriage, and uh, you and your wife aren't getting along that well, you don't leave just because it's inconvenient and just because uh, you're not in love anymore. You see? You're not even in like anymore. Uh, it, it's a tough time. It's a hard time. Uh, a lot of guys in our culture leave in those situations. Don't do that because, you see, you've got kids watching. And they're going to grow up, and they're going to get married, and kids tend to implement what they saw modeled by their fathers. So if you leave, the chances are they'll leave. You see, what Paul is saying here is very simple. He says, 
He says, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the, to the pattern you have in us. When I was a kid, my mom used to sew a lot. And she had these patterns called simplicity patterns. And she'd lay them out. They didn't look simplicity to me. They looked pretty complex. But she was kind of a whiz with that. She could make all kinds of stuff. And, and she'd lay that thing out. And I, I remember watching her very carefully. She'd lay this pattern out, lay out the fabric, and then she'd cut right along that pattern. See, that's, what, that's exactly what Paul is saying. You follow my example. You, you follow the pattern that I have set. Same principle is over in 2 Thessalonians. Flip over a few books to the right. In 2 Thessalonians, he's, he's encouraging them along the same lines because, you, you see, this is the most powerful teacher that there is. In 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 7, he says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. Uh, note verse 9. Uh, that you might follow our example. Now, and let me back up and read 7, 8, and 9 together because they actually relate to Nehemiah and what Nehemiah did. He says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Nor did we eat anyone else's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you that you might follow our example. He's dealing with the same exact issue that Nehemiah is dealing with uh, hundreds of years before. Uh, and, and, you know, many of us are dealing with the exact same issues today because these are leadership, these are leadership issues. Uh, when, when you're a leader, uh, Along with that comes certain levels of power and certain levels of privilege. The higher you go up the ladder, the more power that there is and the more privilege uh, that there is. That's just the way that it works. Uh, and the more potential that there is for the abuse of that power and for a conflict of interest. See, that's always the test of leadership. Uh, you guys heard of the Peter Principle? The Peter Principle is a darn good principle. The Peter Principle basically says that a man will rise to his level of incompetency. What that means is you got a guy who's the best salesman in the, com in the company. The guy, he's a whiz. I mean, he, he can sell ice to an Eskimo. This guy, could, this guy can sell anything to anybody. Guy's a legend. He's unbelievable. So what do they do with that guy? They promote him. To what? Sales director. He's horrible as a sales director because you've got to administrate salesmen. You've got to file reports. You've got to set goals. You've got to project. He didn't know anything about that. He's a salesman. Isn't that interesting? Uh, you know, as you go up the ladder and there's more power and there's more, more privilege, because there's more power and because there's more privilege, there is more possibility for abuse of that power and for misuse of the position. Uh, Nehemiah has just been promoted. There's a shift here now in this passage. He has just become governor. There was no higher position than being a governor. I mean, he was, he, he was at the very top. He was in absolute charge of this country and of this region. Um, the only one he would answer to 
would be the king who was eight, nine hundred miles away. He was in absolute charge. That's always the test. That's always the test of a man's integrity. Um, you guys familiar with Tom Peters? Tom Peters has written a lot of books. Uh, he's sort of the, uh, I was doing a little work on him today on the internet, and, and he was described this way, that he is to leadership what Bill Gates is to software. He's sort of the leadership guru of the last 20 years. Um, the book that really uh, put him on the map was his book called In Search of Excellence. came out about 20 years ago. There was an article in uh, Business Week that appeared a couple of years ago, and the title of it is The Real Confessions of Tom Peters Did In Search of Excellence Fake Data. A magazine suggested it did. Let me, let me read about three paragraphs here. Uh, nearly two decades ago, the top-selling management book of all time made its debut. In Search of Excellence, by consultants Tom Peters and Robert Waterman, immediately vaulted onto the bestseller list and ushered in an era of, of management gurus, management fads, and popular business books that endures to this day. In other words, it started an industry, quite frankly. Now, the outspoken and flamboyant Peters, age 59, shockingly admits that he and his co-author falsified the underlying data in that breakthrough book. In an article in the December issue of Fast Company, Peters writes, this is pretty small beer, but for what it's worth, okay, I confessed. We faked the data. Peters may, the writer goes on and says, Peter may consider it to be small beer, but this confession is a doozy. In Search of Excellence was the ultimate cult business book. It had a lock on the bestseller list for over three years and eventually sold more than three million copies. Excellence became a buzzword even after Business Week debunked some of the hoopla in a 1984 cover story called, uh, called Oops. Um, this guy, he, he goes on and basically says the whole premise of that book was that they did this uh, in-depth study of all these companies to find out the companies that were practicing excellence. It turns out that he admits that basically he talked to some guys at the office and said, hey, what are some cool companies? What are some companies that you think have it together? He asked his consultant. They told him. Uh, they went and did some research on it and then put this book out as though these in-depth uh, business model studies had been done. And, and people changed their businesses. People changed their way of doing uh, commerce as a result of what was in there. And, and quite frankly, it, it seems to be sort of a flippant admission on his part. Now, that's what you call a disconnect. That's what you call uh, an integrity issue. That's what you call a character issue. Um, I was looking for an article today, and it drove me nuts because I couldn't find it. You ever have that happen to you? You pull something, and you say, man, I'm, this is a zinger. And uh, I don't have a file system. I have a pile system is my problem. Um, but in the Dallas Morning News about six months ago, they had they had a half a page article that featured over the last five years all of these prominent leaders and public figures who had uh, lied on their resume. And they're everywhere. The gal who's head of the US Olympic Committee just had to resign. The guy who was supposed to be the coach at Notre Dame is not there right now. He's an assistant somewhere. Why? Because he falsified something on his resume. See, we're hearing about this. We're hearing about this all the time. Uh, the historian 
the Ivy League guy who wrote the book uh, um, uh, Founding Brothers. I'm blanking on his name right now. A guy with all these you know, degrees and all this you know, academic hoopla, and he's an endowed chair uh, somewhere. Well, you know, he's talked for years about his experiences in Vietnam. He never served in Vietnam. Remember that guy who was the baseball manager? Uh, see, if I had my article, I could tell you their name. Um, he's not in baseball anymore. Why not? Well, he would motivate his players by telling them of his experiences in Vietnam on the battlefield. Problem was, he never was in Vietnam on the battlefield. You, you, see, you see, that's a public persona, uh, but, but there's a disconnect because there's a difference between what somebody says and what somebody does. Uh, we've pretty much had it up to here with these integrity issues and with these credibility issues. I, I want us to dissect Nehemiah here. And, and, and I want us to observe this guy's life and how he handles his life and what makes him the kind of man that he is. And it all has to do with the fact of his integrity and it has to do with the fact uh, of his example. Um, you know, one of the wildest things that I've seen in a long, long time, and what reminded me of it was a guy in Maine asked me about it this weekend. Uh, this guy came up to me and he told me he was a Cowboy fan. And I said, well, great, great, you know. And he said, are you a Cowboy fan? I said, no, no, I'm not. I'm a Christian. Uh, I, I, think, I think it was Chuck who said this a while back. I, it was a great line. He said, I used to think I was a Cowboy fan, but I realized I was a Tom Landry fan. So I think that speaks for a lot of us. And, and, and this, this guy, this guy was probably, I don't know, he's probably 30. He started talking to me about Tom Landry. He said, did you ever meet Tom Landry? And I said, well, actually, I, yeah, I did. And he said, what was he like? And I said, well, I mean, I didn't know the man well, but I had an occasion to talk with him a few times. And, um, I, I said, you know, I was privileged to meet him. I know some people who know him very well. And he said, what was he like? And I said, well, what they tell me is that uh, what you see in public is what he is in private. Uh, there's character there. There's integrity there. Uh, and and I, I said, I'll tell you this. Uh, he was as respected as any man I've ever seen. I said, one of the most remarkable things that I've ever seen is when he died. And what happened in Dallas, Texas when Tom Landry died. My parents were visiting from California when that happened. And if you guys remember, they interrupted programming, and they didn't interrupt it for 10 minutes. And all these specials started running. I mean, literally, and then the day of the funeral, there was coverage that went on for hours. And never forget, my mom. we were watching it. My mom turned to me and she said, you know, this is like the president died. And if you remember, that's exactly what it was like. Now, why was that? Was that because he won Super Bowls and because he was? No, no. There are other guys that have won Super Bowls with the Cowboys, right? And when they die, they probably won't get quite the same reception. It has to do, what does it have to do with? has to do with the man's integrity, has to do with the man's character, and it has to do with the man's example, his example. Let's break down this guy, Nehemiah, and let's see what we, what we can learn from this guy. In verse 14, here's, here's, what I, here's what stands out to me about Nehemiah. He was an example over time. 
He was an example for the long run. He just wasn't a flash in the pan. Um, back there in, in, in Nehemiah, we're, we're given a very careful uh, chronology. He says, moreover from the day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah. Now catch this. From the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, for 12 years, neither I nor my kinsmen, literally, neither I nor my brothers who were with him, have eaten the governor's food allowance. Uh, uh, the food allowance for the governor basically came from the people. He was given uh, a budget. He, he could have X amount. Now, where did that money come from? That money came from the people. Those were taxes. And in essence, what this guy is saying is, is that for a period here of 12 years, he did not exact that extra money and that extra income, which would have been substantial and would have been significant because he was the governor. And as governor, he had power and he had privilege and was uh, able and had permission to live at a certain level. But he refused to live at that level because to do it would mean that he would have to exact taxes from the people. You know what this guy did? He didn't collect taxes for 12 years. That's what he did. This guy wasn't a Democrat. <laughs> if you follow what I'm talking about. This guy believed in tax cuts. But, but you see, he took the tax cut and he took the hit personally. That was money that would have gone into his pocket. And it was, it was expected. For 12 years, he didn't do it. Uh, for 12 years, every year, he had the opportunity to take that. It would have been legal under the law, but he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to live at that level because, as we'll see later, he knew that the people were under a heavy burden. And this guy, this guy had a heart for the people. He had a heart for the work. More importantly, he had a heart for God. So, so that heart that he had came out in how he lived his life. And, and he was an example, and he was an example for the long term. He was an example for the long haul. Every time I go to North Carolina, it always amazes me to get on, when you, when you fly into Charlotte, and you're in a car, and you get on the freeway there, it's called the Billy Graham Expressway. That always blows me away. I grew up in California. They tend not to name freeways in California for evangelist. <laughs> They're not real big on that for some reason. Um, that's a real honor to Mr. Graham and to his life, isn't it? If you've ever read his biography, you know when he was getting started, um, there was a meeting that took place in Modesto, California. They were out in the San Joaquin Valley of, uh, of Central California. And Cliff Burroughs was at this meeting. And uh, George Beverly Shea was at this meeting and the Wilson brothers who were behind the scenes and kind of ran all the business things, they were at this meeting. And what those guys put in the place was that they'd seen a lot of abuses and they put, they put some standards into place that would protect them for the long haul. And isn't it wonderful? See, that was in the late 40s. Isn't it wonderful? I mean, we're almost, what, 60 years later, 55 years later. Isn't it wonderful that here's a ministry that has been going that long without any hint or touch of scandal? 
Isn't that tremendous? Yeah, that's, a, that's a great thing. Because you see, what they did was they put these standards into effect. They felt they were biblical standards, and they just quite simply, they adhered to the standards. You see? The scripture talks about uh, avoiding even the appearance of evil. Not just avoiding evil, even the appearance, you see, of evil. I stay in a lot of hotels. And, and one of the things that I got to be careful, uh, it's, it's kind of weird, because uh, if I ever order room service, about 90% of the time, you know who comes up and brings in the food? They got a woman doing that. So I'll tell you what I do. When, uh, now I, I could not order the food. There's no way I'm doing that. <laughs> so I open the door, the rooms are, I open the door, and if it's a guy, great, it's a guy. Come on in, whole thing. If it's a gal, you know what I do? She's got her cart, she pulls it in, and she usually takes it all the way. Where do you want it? Oh, just over there on the table, it's fine. What I do is I stand at the door, literally with one foot in the hall, and one foot right here. I'm, I'm, I'm straddling the door jam. That's what I'm doing. And she's over there and doing all this, and I'm just waiting for her. And they always look up at me like, you know, and I just stand there. Quite frankly, I don't care what they think, and I don't care how they respond. And, you know, she'll unravel the food or whatever she's doing. She comes back. I don't move, and then I'll sign the deal right there. Thank you very much. She walks out. Then I shut the door. Why? That's just smart. That's just a wise thing to do. It, it's, it's just called covering your tail, you see? Uh, now, Billy Graham, in, back in 1947 and 48, every guy in that team, they covenanted with one another that they would never be in a room alone with a woman other than their wives to avoid the very appearance of evil. And they've been doing that now for 55, 60 years. See, that's credibility over the long haul. That's an example over the long haul. And that's to be greatly admired and greatly respected. You see that in this guy's life. Uh, let's look at the next verse. Because in the next verse, what we're going to see here is in verse 15, I would, I would say this to you. He was an example because he didn't abuse his privileges and power. All right? He was an example because he didn't abuse his privileges and power. 15 says this, But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of servants. Even their servants domineered the people. See, this was pretty common back then. Uh, even in the time of Jesus, the tax collectors had to bring in a certain amount. Whatever they brought in over that was theirs. That's why in Jericho, when Jesus was speaking, and this tax collector who couldn't quite see, this guy was a little shorter of stature, so Zacchaeus gets up in the sycamore tree, and Jesus dialogues with this guy. And when this guy comes to faith in Christ, what he does is, he says that he will go and repay everything that he had taken illegally. He'll go and he'll repay it four times. See, that's a changed life. That's a changed heart. Uh, Zacchaeus, you see, before he met Christ, abused his power and he abused his privileges. 
you guys been reading the paper about somewhere in rural town? I'm not quite sure where this is, but this guy who was a sheriff has put all these black people in jail on drug charges, and everyone that he's arrested has been black, and it's pretty much been the whole population of this small little town. Something's amiss there. Something's a little screwy. They're checking it out. They're watching it very carefully. It appears on the surface that someone has abused their power and someone has abused their privilege. Nehemiah didn't do it. The former governors had done that. They, they took full advantage. They lived at a certain level. Uh, they enjoyed the good life. Did they care of the economic hardship that was, uh, <clears throat> that was placed upon families and individuals? They didn't care. Because, you see, they had the power and they had the privilege. Uh, that, that, always, that always demonstrates the condition of somebody's heart doesn't it? Um, and even their servants domineered the people. Now the question is, why didn't Nehemiah do this? The answer is in the next line. He says this, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. That's really interesting to me. You know, uh, throughout the scripture, we see this phrase, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Uh, it's in Proverbs 14 different times. Uh, the, the fear of the Lord is a concept that uh, we don't talk a lot about anymore, but it's, it's a concept that, that, quite frankly, keeps society in check. And it keeps society, um, it keeps, us, keeps it on a plane of justice. Uh, you go back and look at the founding documents of this country. And it becomes pretty apparent that the laws that this country was based upon, the vast majority of them came from the scriptures. Uh, <clears throat> now, were, was, was, were all those documents right? Uh, were, were there, uh, were there uh, no flaws? No, there were flaws. There were flaws in the South, wrote in laws for slavery, that kind of thing. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, laws were put into place, and because of these laws, people from all over the world made incredible sacrifices to come to this nation. Now, why did they make sacrifices to come to this nation? Well, because for most people, not all, there was liberty, there was justice, there was economic opportunity. Where did that come from? That came from the laws. Where did the laws come from? The laws came from the scriptures. How blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Uh, and let's talk about the fear of the Lord for a minute. You, you, guys, ever, you guys ever read in the paper and, and you see these, uh, you read about some of these court decisions and what judges do? You ever get upset? You ever get bothered? Uh, I do. Yeah. Um, sometimes I do. It seems like there's no justice. Uh, it, it seems like uh, what, what happened wasn't fair and it seems like it wasn't right. Um, you know, the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When, uh, when you meet someone with wisdom, you don't always say that they have wisdom. Sometimes we call it common sense. Uh, you, ever, you ever, you know, just in passing, say, you know, Joe, he's got a, he's got a lot of common sense. Well, when you say that, what do you mean? Well, common sense is wisdom. It's just basic, uh, good thinking. 
that adds up. It's congruent. The pieces fit together. That's what wisdom, common sense is wisdom. Um, does it not appear at times that we have lost our common sense? Doesn't it appear that we have lost our wisdom? Well, we shouldn't be surprised because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of common sense. Um, uh, Nehemiah, contrast him in verse, um, look at verse 9. In verse 9, what was happening was the wealthy were taking advantage. The haves were taking advantage of the have-nots. Uh, this, was, this was an Enron situation. Uh, this was a Tycho situation. We've been reading here in the last year or two about these guys at the top that were enriching themselves at the expense of other people. You had people working hard. You had people doing their jobs. You had people, you know, putting in their hours, putting in extra hours. But the guys at the top were abusing their privileges and abusing their power and salting away hundreds of millions of dollars and um, not caring about the other people. This is what was happening with Nehemiah in verse 9. Know what he says as he confronts these people. He says, again, I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God? because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies. You know, there's such a thing as a healthy fear of God. Uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of, uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs says the fear of the Lord. How do children learn the fear of the Lord? Children learn the fear of the Lord by first having a fear of their fathers. I got now, now, you got to understand something here. I'm not talking about a terror. I'm not talking about abuse. I'm not talking about, uh, uh, you know what I'm not talking about. i got a question. How many of you guys, growing up, had a fear of your father? Now, keep your hands up. All right. Now, you guys that had a fear of your father, how many of you were convinced that your father loved you? Yeah. How many of you were convinced that your father would do anything for you? Yeah, see a lot of hands. I, a few went down, not many. You see? Now, if, if you can put them down now, because you guys are over 50 and you got rotator cuff issues. <laughs> um, I saw a bunch of hands. How many of you were afraid, had a fear of your father? You put your hand. How many of you had, uh, you had a fear of your father, but you knew your father loved you? I saw a few hands go down. Most of them stayed up. See, if you had a fear of your father and you had no doubt that your dad would love you, you had a good father. See, a little fear is a good thing. A little fear is, is a healthy thing. If, if you had a healthy fear of your father, see, it wasn't that he was going to beat you or abuse you, but you had a fear of your father because you believed that your father meant what he said. You knew in your family that if you crossed the line, what your dad said, there would be consequences, right? There would be penalties, right? Uh, there would be a strap that might come out. Uh, there would be some kind of immediate and swift retribution that would remind you it's not a wise thing to cross that line. Why? Because your dad loved you. See, that's the fear of the Lord. The it's the fear of the Lord that keeps us in check. It's the fear of the Lord that keeps us from evil. And that's what Nehemiah appeals to with these guys. Hey, 
he said, what he's saying to him, you can't continue to abuse these people and think that you're just going to get away with it. Because, because God, God will take care of you. God will, will punish you if you don't respond in the right way to these people. Because God's a God of justice. Nehemiah operated his life, the basis of his life, the basis for not abusing his power, and the basis for not abusing his privilege was the fear of the Lord. Turn with me real quick to, to uh, Proverbs 15.3. Here's a great proverb. This is the most practical proverb in the world. Uh, Proverbs 15.3 uh, just, just kind of says it all as far as I'm concerned. It says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. That's it. See, what, what Nehemiah knew was that the way that he lived out his position, the way that he lived out his responsibility, God was watching. The way that he, he did his work as governor. Uh, flip over to the New Testament. Flip over to Colossians. Colossians, it's, it's, it's the same concept. Um, let me see if I can find this. I hadn't planned on turning to this. Gosh, I'm in trouble. Give me a second. Ah, there it is. Look at Colossians 3, verse 23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily. Are you a governor? All right. Are you a welder? Uh, you drive a tow truck? Are you a CPA? Uh, are you a, 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 a government worker? Whatever you do, do your work heartily. As for the Lord, rather than for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. He's talking to Christians. God disciplines believers, right? Sure he does. Uh, Hebrews 10 goes on and says uh, that if you've never been disciplined by God, you ought to check out and see if you're really a believer. Because just as a father disciplines his son, so the Lord disciplines us. See, we cross a line because the Lord loves us. He'll admonish us. He'll discipline us. Does it all the time. Whatever you do, do your work hardly. So you're a governor, the eyes of the Lord in every place. The Lord's looking to see how you're going to handle that power and that privilege. What kind of work do you do? See, you know what Nehemiah knew? Nehemiah knew that ultimately he was working for the Lord. And he would give an account to the Lord. See, that's the issue. So, are you a welder? You know what that means? You do your welding to the glory of God. You do your work to the glory of God. Um, are you CPA? You do those tax returns to the glory of God. There, there's, no, uh, there's no creative accounting. You do it right. Because the eyes of the Lord in every place. Are you an airline mechanic? Please. <laughs> I implore you. Do your work to the glory of God. See how this works out in practical, practical issues and practical matters? See, I mean, quite frankly, uh, knowing that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, that's tied in with the fear of the Lord. Because the Lord is going to recompense me for how I do my work. And he's going to recompense you for how you do your work. Uh, for how we raise our children. You got a kid that's got a strong will. And he's four and five. You know what your job is? Not your wife's job. You know what your job is, some of you young guys? Your job 
is to face off that little kid and to love him enough not to let him win. You got to love him enough to let him know he's not the center of the universe because if you don't when he's 15, you're going to regret it to your dying day. That's your job, you see. He's got to develop a fear of you and he doesn't have it. So it's your job as a father to instill that, 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 that before he does something wrong, it's going to cross his mind, what's my dad going to do if he finds out? That's a healthy fear. It's a restraint. It's a tether on that kid's life. And we need that tether. Back to Nehemiah. He was motivated by the fear of the Lord. So let me ask you something. What motivates you and how you live your life? What motivates you when you give your word? What motivates you uh, in a business situation? What motivates you to fulfill a contract? What motivates you when nobody else is around? That's a huge deal. Um, look at the next one. Look at verse 16. We're talking about the fact that Nehemiah had integrity and Nehemiah was an example. In verse 16, I would say this, he was an example because he was willing to get his hands dirty. He was an example because he was willing to get his hands dirty. He says, and I also applied myself to the work on this wall. We did not buy any land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. There are two things there. Number one, he just didn't tell the people to work on the wall. He worked on the wall. He got down there with them, and he did the work that had to be done. He just wasn't supervising. He just wasn't doing management. He just wasn't doing uh, uh, management by walking around or whatever the latest book is, a management trend. He got in there and he worked with them. You know, years ago, I was at a, uh, I mean, this is a long time ago. I was at this conference and there were a lot of big time, you know, big time guys speaking there. And, uh, and there, was a, there was one area where they had their different ministries and they had booths and, you know, brochures and books and tapes and all that jazz. And I remember um, at the conclusion of that, I was walking through, and everybody, everyone's putting stuff away and, you know, putting them in the U-Haul trucks and all that jazz and hand carts and all that. And, you know, it was, just time to, it was just time to shut it all down. And I was walking down this one aisle, and this guy went past me, and I kind of did a double take because he was the guy that had just spoken to about 22,000 people, and he was pushing a hand cart. And, and I just kind of watched him. And he went back, and he had three or four guys that worked you know, at his booth, and they're putting books together. And you know what he was doing? He was doing just what they were doing. He was stacking books. He had a hand truck. He's zipping in the U-Haul. He's unloading it. All. I'll tell you what. That guy's estimation with me went up, about, went up about 10 degrees. Just to see him willing to get his hands dirty. Isn't that rare? But doesn't that, doesn't that tell you something about a guy's heart? Doesn't that tell you something about See. See, there weren't 22,000 guys watching him move boxes. Now, 22,000 guys heard him preach. But quite frankly, nobody was watching what he was doing because, quite frankly, it was insignificant. Yet I would submit to you it was very significant. You see, the guy's, the, the, the guy's private life matched up to his public persona. Here's the other thing that's mentioned in that verse. Nehemiah says, I didn't, he says, I, I didn't buy any land. What does that mean? It means riches. He, wasn't, he, he, he had the power and he had uh, the means to profit from what was going on in the city of Jerusalem. He didn't do that. 
He could have done it, but once again, it's an integrity issue for him. He didn't take advantage. I've got to move quickly. Look, look at, uh, if you would, look at verse 17. Here I would say he was an example because of his generosity. He says, Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, hey, have you ever had 150 people over to your house for dinner? That's a lot of folks. That's something you might do at a, you know, you might have a wedding reception. And, and you know, you're, you're, serving, uh, you're, you're serving non-fat milk and graham crackers. I mean, that stuff adds up. He's got 150 at his table, plus the people that visit from the nations. Now, catch this in verse 18. Now, that which was prepared for us each day was one ox and six choice sheep. Also, birds were prepared for me. And once in 10 days, all sorts of wine were furnished in abundance. Yet for all this, this is, this is something. Yet for all this, I did not demand the governor's food allowance because the servitude was heavy on this people. Um, could this guy have collected the money? Yeah. Did he collect it? No. He paid for it out of his own pocket. Uh, maybe you remember years ago when the, when the scandals were going on with Swaggart and with Baker and the air-conditioned dog houses. You guys remember that? And all that excess and all that abuse. Uh, remember Dobson sent out a letter. It was great. I like Dobson. He kind of just goes right for the juggler. He just tells the truth. And, and, you know, he said, hey, we've got, let me be very honest with you folks. We've been shaken to the core in evangelicalism because we've got an integrity crisis. Uh, we've got... Uh, We've got air-conditioned dog houses. We've got money being spent on things that are inappropriate and that are excessive and that are inappropriate. Um, you know what I remember about that letter? I remember a few things. He said, I want to assure you that this ministry has no jets. We have no private jets. He said, I want to assure you we have no condos in Hawaii that you don't know about. I want to assure you that there is nothing hidden that we are embarrassed for you to know about. Because we believe that the money you give is blood money. That's what he said. That every penny is blood money. It's money that's coming from people who are giving this for the furtherance of the gospel. We understand that. Uh, we accept that trust, and we are accountable for that trust. Uh, you know what? I think back then there was a potential for a lot of ministries to have taken some hits. But you see, the ministries where there was integrity, the ministries where there was uh, explanation, the ministries where there, was, uh, there, where there was accountability, and where what was done in private met what was done in public, you know what? Those ministries were fine. Because trust, trust had been earned and trust had been built up. Uh, there's an example. There's an example. Example is the most powerful teacher uh, in, in all the world. And we know that intuitively, you see? So, let's bring this down, and let's just, let's just bring it right home. It's fine to talk about Nehemiah. It's, it's fine to talk about the kind of leader that he was. The question is, gentlemen, what kind of leaders are we?
See, I think this is the issue. I think it's the issue with our kids. Hey, now, none of us are without flaw. We, we've all screwed up. We've all fallen short. Uh, but, but, but see, I, I, think, I think integrity is not screwing up. I think integrity is when you screw up. It's going to that individual and saying, you know what? I screwed up and I was wrong and I blew it. And there's a genuine repentance in your heart. And God responds to that. Uh, you know, um, let, let's just address this issue. If there's a disconnect in your life, how do you handle that? If there is, uh, if there is a difference between your public persona and your private life, how do you deal with that? Well, you know what I think we do? I think we come to the cross, and I think we go to the Lord, and we say, Lord, I've fallen short in this area, and I haven't been the man that you want me to be. And, and Lord, I want to follow you. I want to implement your truth. I want to become an example. I need your forgiveness. And so we come to the Lord in brokenness and repentance. And you know what he does? He forgives us. And he cleans us up, and he puts us back on the path. And then we start, we start restoring trust. I had a guy years ago. I was doing a marriage conference, and, and a guy and his wife came up to me and said, can we have a few minutes with you? And I said, well, I've got a few minutes before I have to leave for the airport. And we sat down uh, at a restaurant right next in the hotel. And the guy said, we don't have much time. But he said, let me just cut right to the chase. And I said, okay. He said, uh, my wife and I have been married for 10 years. We've got three great kids. Um, he said, Steve, uh, we're in a great church. God's blessed my business. He said, Steve, six months ago, I got involved sexually with my secretary. It was wrong. I, I admit it was wrong. It was sin. I've gone to my wife. I repented. I, I told her what happened. I arranged for the woman to get another job. She doesn't work. I have no contact with her whatsoever. He said, my problem is my wife won't trust me. I said, okay. And she's sitting right there. And there's always two sides. And I just looked at her, and I said, well, is that right? And she said, yes, it is right. He did All what he said is true. He came. He told me what happened. Uh, and yes, I don't trust him. For you see, this is the third time in five years this has happened. And I said to the guy, I said, well, you know, as you've already mentioned, we don't have much time. So let me just cut to the chase. Uh, uh, I don't even know you, and I don't trust you. <laughs> and if your wife did trust you, there'd be something wrong with her. Because if the tables were turned, and she had, see, what you left out was fairly significant. This is your third time, right, in five years. How come you didn't volunteer that? That's a disconnect. I didn't use that term. But it was very clear. See, that's it. You know what? Genuine repentance doesn't minimize the sin. The, uh, genuine repentance doesn't varnish it. Repentance is confession. It comes clean. You left that out. If your wife had done that, let me ask you something. If your wife had done that, would you have trusted your wife? No. You'd have a lot of trouble trusting you. Yet here you are telling me that you got a problem You've confessed it to God, you've confessed it to her, and she won't trust you. She'd be crazy to trust you. Now, here's what I would suggest to you. 
I suggest, I commend you, and I take it your repentance is genuine and all that. I'll just take that from your heart as being true. I don't know your heart. God knows your heart. Let me say this to you. What you need to do is you need to be clean for the next seven years. That just sounded biblical to me. I just kind of pulled it out of the hat. I said, you need to be clean. You know, I'm glad you've been clean six months. You need to go seven years and not have anything like this ever happen again. And then, after seven years, what can happen is you'll get to zero. Because you see, where you are right now is, and where you've been for five years, you're in trust deficit. You're in major trust deficit. And you're upset because she won't trust you. You be clean for the next seven years. Then you'll get to zero. And then she can begin to trust you. You want to be trusted? Then you be trustworthy. Here's the principle, guys. In the New Testament, forgiveness is free, but leadership is earned. Did you catch that? In the New Testament, forgiveness is free. You come to the Lord in brokenness, repentance, forgiveness is free, but leadership is earned. 1 Timothy 3 says an overseer, an elder, is to be above reproach, and then it hits the character issues. Has there been a disconnect over the last 5, 10 years? question is, where will you be in the next 5, 10 years? That can be totally turned around. Paul says, you follow me as I follow Christ. You know what we need? We need some Nehemiahs. We need the real thing. And they're around. Elijah said, he thought he was the only guy left. God said, I got 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. They were men of integrity. They were men of character. They were examples. 1 Corinthians 10 said, these things were written for our example. That's why we look at Nehemiah. Let's bow. Well, Lord, this is just real basic, down-to-earth stuff. And Lord, uh, I, I don't know why, but the last day and a half, I've, I've had trouble working on this stuff. And it's been hard for me to even connect it. I mean, I know the principles, but it just, it's just, it's just been hard for me the last couple days working on this stuff, and even teaching it tonight. And I'm not sure why that is. Whenever we want to follow you, the enemy gets concerned. And uh, quite frankly, the enemy does not want there to be congruency in our lives. He wants there to be a disconnect. And, and Father, this, this is where the rubber meets the road. We ask, Lord, that we might be men like, like Landry, who a man who lived in a community for a long, long time and, and had great respect. Because he was following you. He was, not, he was not without sin. We know that. He was not without his flaws. Nehemiah was not without his flaws. There's no man without flaw. No man without sin. We know that. But Lord, we look to these men and we respect them because they were examples over the long haul. They were examples over time. And, and Father, I would pray for each one of us that we would not be uh, content with where we are, but that we would have a willingness to grow, 
and to mature and to grow up in Christ. Um, the fact of the matter is we never stay right where we are in the Christian life. We're either growing or we're declining. and We want to grow. Lord, this week we're going to face, uh, we're going to face integrity issues. We're going, to take, we're going to face issues where we're going to have to make a decision. Uh, uh, and, and for some of us, Lord, when we're under pressure, the pressure is to hedge the truth. The pressure is to withhold truth. Uh, the, the pressure is not to come forward and to come clean because it might cost us something. Lord, help us to see that it really will cost us something. It'll cost us integrity. But your eyes are in every place. And Lord, the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro about the earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully his, that he may strongly support them. As we face integrity issues this week, may we pass the test. May we love you more than stuff. May we love you, Lord, more than money. May we love you more than any deal. You watch our hearts and you watch our lives. Father, we want to honor you with our lives. Bring this back to our remembrance this week as we encounter these situations. We want to be men who live to your glory. We want to be men who honor you. And those who honor you, them will you honor. We again pray for the guys that are out of work. We pray, Lord, that you would encourage them. We pray that you'd meet their needs. We pray that you would show them that, that you are a faithful God again and again. Lord, let them see it. Let them experience it. Let them live on your promises. We commit ourselves to you again tonight with fresh hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. See you next week, Lord willing.